Welcome to The Backpack, a podcast from Christ Community Church in Shelbyville, Kentucky. On The Backpack, we want to prepare you for the journey outside where following Jesus meets real life. Hey, welcome to The Backpack. My name is DJ. I'm one of your hosts, and thanks for joining me back at the canteen. This is one of our regular segments where we feature sermons from the preaching ministry here at Christ Community Church. We're in the Gospel of Luke, making our way through chapter 10 in a mini-series we're calling Snapshots and Shovels. This week, we encounter the familiar story of the Good Samaritan. Pastor Blake opens up the text as we examine to get at what is the heart of this story. What does it teach us about our God? And the one-word answer is simply mercy. So let's listen in to Pastor Blake as he unpacks mercy in this week's message. We're going to be in Luke 10, and as we open Luke 10 together, um, something else that our leaders have done, and I'm so thankful for this, is they've uh, they said, hey, Blake, could you help us uh, get us your information sooner, and we'd love to develop a sermon guide, a little bit of an outline. Uh, maybe you got one on the way in. If you would like one, there's some back on this table, or you can raise your hand right now, and DJ will come around. He's got some of those. And so uh, hopefully we're going to continue to do this, and we're thankful for, for some of our deacons who have really stepped up and, and helped make that happen, all right? So as you find Luke 10, and before we read from uh, verse 25 and following, let me give you a quick uh, catch-up from last week. Snapshots and Shovels is this series we're in in Luke 10 and 11, and we're talking about what happens in, in, when God breaks new ground in our lives whether that's in us or in our ministries, the things that we're doing, what's it look like for God to break new ground? And last week we talked about, from the beginning of chapter 10, how it requires this childlike faith. We've got to learn how to be a kid again if we want to see uh, God do new things in our life. And today we're going to talk about the Father's mercy. And the Father's mercy, you see, as it relates to breaking new ground. The Father's mercy gives us the courage to fail forward. It's a phrase I love to use in life and leadership. Mercy, the God's mercy, gives us the courage to fail forward. So, so that's kind of where we're going today, right? And I want to invite you to read with me, uh, beginning in verse 25 uh, from Luke chapter 10 through verse 37. Then an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus, saying, Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What's written in the law, Jesus asked him. How do you read it? And the lawyer answered, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. Well, you've answered correctly, Jesus told him. Do this, and you will live. But wanting to justify himself... The expert asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus took up the question, and he said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him, beat him up, and fled, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. In the same way, a Levite, when he arrived at that place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, on his journey, came up to him, and when he saw the man, he had compassion. He went over to him, and he bandaged his wounds, pouring on olive oil and wine. 
And then he put him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper, and said, Take care of him. When I come back, I'll reimburse you for whatever extra you spend. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? Asked Jesus. The one who showed mercy to him, he said. And then Jesus told him, go and do the same. Holy Spirit, we thank you for inspiring God's word to be written down by these men to tell the good news of Jesus Christ. Teach us, speak to us from the word of God today. Change us, Lord, we pray in your name. Amen. When the game of life was introduced in 1960, the purpose of the game was to earn the most wealth. The way you got there was simple enough. You went to college, you got a job, you bought insurance, and you saved for retirement. I made this slide this morning, and Magnolia came early with me, and as I put this picture on the slide, she said, Dad, do the adults get to play this game in church today? I said, no. But over time, this game has changed because designers realized that the game didn't reflect consumers' changing views of, of their life goals. So in 2007, uh, designers gave this game a big update. And in that update, they allowed players to score points for virtuous deeds like saving an endangered species, opening a health food chain, and recycling. And instead of starting the game at point A and finishing at point Z, in the new game of life, there is now no fixed path. You decide how you want to spend your time. Now, this redesign uh, always had a hard time addressing the fundamental criticism of the game because the only way that they could come up with to reward these virtuous acts was with money. So if you save an endangered species, you collect $200,000. If you come up with a solution to pollution, that's two hundred and fifty grand, and if you open a health food chain, you get hundred k right there. So this overhaul in 2007 came out, the game of life twists and turns. It was almost existential, right? Instead of putting players on this fixed path, it provided multiple ways to start out in life, but literally nowhere to finish. One article summarized it all like this. This is actually the game's selling point. It has no goal. Life is aimless. So if we, as people, and as a church, are going to put time into breaking new ground, into starting a new season of life, into doing something new in our lives or in our ministries, what's the goal? Where does this all end up? You see, that's the heart of the question that's asked by the expert of the law in verse 25. He stood up to test Jesus, saying, Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life. Now, as he asks the question, we understand that, that he thinks he knows the answer. At the very least, he has a strong opinion about what the answer should be, and that's why he's testing Jesus. But he wants to test this theory before he gives himself to it, because, I mean, if, if he's thinking, if I begin on this journey of inheriting eternal life, what, what's the goal? Where, where does this end up? What really matters? Now, before we just kind of dismiss this, I want us to think about some phrases that reflect that same heart in us today. 
Maybe we're asking this question in some different ways. I hear phrases like, as, as long as you're a good person, it doesn't really matter what you believe. The only thing that matters, right? For some people, they'll say, that the only thing that matters is you're saved and baptized. Like, as long as you're getting to heaven, we're good. What must I do? What must I do to inherit eternal life? And then on the other side of that, you end up with phrases like this that reveal the same heart, right? What, we all know that church attendance doesn't save you. Or you can love Jesus and not the church. And all of those phrases, right, are reflective of this idea that we see in the game of life. There's multiple ways to walk your faith journey. But what's it look like to finish? What must I do to inherit eternal life? Did you know that in the last 25 years, kind of the, the pushing out of that idea of, of amb ambiguity has caused 40 million Americans to stop attending church? And that doesn't count the people who haven't been to church at all over those 25 years. You see, all of those people, us, many of us, we're testing God with this question, just like the expert in the law. What must I do to inherit eternal life? And when we test God, it keeps us from trusting him. When we test God, it keeps us from trusting him. Well, Jesus is, after all, the sovereign God. He knows all things. And so he sees this test, and in his mercy, he goes on this journey with the expert in the law. Verse 26 and following, he says, oh, well, what's written in the law? How do you read it? Well, is, he's just salivating now, right? Like he gets to answer, and so he gives his answer. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and, and love your neighbor as yourself. Man, wouldn't you love to hear Jesus say, verse 28, you've answered correctly. That's right. Jesus said I knew the answer. Do this, and you will live. Now, first, there's kind of a, a theological elephant in the room, right? Because did Jesus just say that there's a way to get to heaven that isn't by grace alone, through faith alone? That if you just love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor yourself, you can inherit eternal life? Well, there's, there's a couple of things to think about. First, we have to be reminded that God is three persons in one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we, we believe this by faith. And so to love God with, with all your heart, soul, and strength is, is to love Jesus. It's, it's one and the same with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. But, but the other thing to remember is that the law was a grace from God. And it was a grace that exposed sin and created in people a, a holy humility, an understanding of their need for grace. Romans 3.20 says, For no one will be justified in his sight by the works of the law, because the knowledge of sin comes through the law. Well, and after the coming of the Holy Spirit, that law is actually written on our hearts. And, and so as you and I, or anybody, begins to pursue moral right and wrong, we prove that the law is written on our hearts. So, so when Jesus says to this man, you, you've answered correctly, he's affirming that for anyone to inherit eternal life, a person is going to have this law written on his or her heart. Love God with every nook and cranny of your being and love your neighbor as yourself. Anyone who inherits eternal life is going to have that written on their heart. 
So Jesus says, do this. If you can, if you can do this perfectly, you will live. Now, the next line in verse 29 could be the rallying cry of every single person in humanity. Wanting to justify himself. Wanting to justify himself. He asked Jesus, who is my neighbor? Wanting to justify himself. Wanting to prove that he was right. Wanting to prove that he'd given the right answer. Wanting to pass the test. He asked this clarifying question. And who's my neighbor? Alistair Begg uh, made comment on this man. He said, it's as if this guy is asking Jesus or, or thinking in his mind, I want to find my small group of people to love and not have to worry about all the rest. Like, could you just tell me that my neighbor is those people that I like spending time with and that are easy to love? Because if that's true, then I can pass the test. Because you see, he's asking this question, this expert in the law is asking because he knows what you and I know that he hasn't really loved his neighbor as himself. Maybe the ones he likes, yes, but, but certainly not the ones who get on his nerves or, or the ones who even oppose him that we would call enemies. And although our quick response to, to loving God is yes, when we start thinking and asking ourselves, do we love him with all of our heart and all of our soul and all of our mind and all of our strength, we get nervous real quick, don't we? Wanting to justify himself, he asked Jesus, who is my neighbor? He's testing God. And when we test God, it keeps us from trusting him. Because at the core of testing God is a desire to trust and justify yourself. Richard Foster uh, said this in some writing about this idea of self-justification. He said, we fear so deeply what we think other people see in us that we talk in order to straighten out their understanding. If I've done some wrong thing or even some right thing that I think you may misunderstand and discover that you know about it, I will be very tempted to help you understand my action. Now, that's some fancy language to say, you know all those times where you're like, no, 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 you don't understand. But, but what you don't understand is, here's why I did this. And then he says this, silence is one of the deepest disciplines of the Spirit simply because it puts the stopper on all self-justification. One of the fruits of silence, he writes, is the freedom to let God be our justifier. We don't need to straighten others out. Mm. Wanting to justify himself, he asked Jesus, who is my neighbor? Would you join me in a little exercise? Like, this may be uncomfortable or maybe completely comfortable for you, but, but, but would you just ask God, the, the Holy Spirit right now, how am I testing you, God? How am I testing you? It, it's something that all of us do, and we do it in the everyday things of life. We ask questions. We test God by saying, well, well, how can I have a good marriage, God? Or how can I get a better job, God? That would really help the budget. Or, or we test God and we say, well, how, how can I get better grades? 
Uh, how, how can I break new ground in this season of life? Or, or maybe our question is the question of the expert in the law. God, what must I do? What's the bare minimum to inherit eternal life? What do I have to do, God, so that you and me are good? And God, so often in his mercy, just like Jesus says to the expert in the law, says, well, what do you think? How do you read my word as it relates to that situation? And we give answers, right? Like when it comes to marriage, we're like, well, I could have a better marriage if we went to counseling or if we went to, went to marriage 911. If we went to that class at church, that would be a good thing. Or we, we could invest in date nights. As it relates to our job, it's like, well, I know I could get a better job if I did a better job of networking or, you know, took a class on building my resume. We think about grades, and it's like, if, we, if I just study hard, if I do some extra credit, my grades can get better. If I, if I want to break new ground, I, I can, you know, do some, do some really good reflection and ask myself, what am I passionate about? And, and I can make the decision I'm going to risk my life savings to, to join Jesus church, right? We, we begin to justify ourselves, or we say, well, here, if, if I just, if I make it to, to church when my schedule allows, or, you know, if I raise my kids really well, and I, I make sure that they get to church, or if I'm generous, and if I can just make it to one Love Shelbyville day a year, that's got to be a good thing to inherit eternal life. God says to us in those moments when we're testing him, testing him yeah, you're right, those are, those are all right answers. If you do those things, your marriage will get better, you'll get a better job, you might get better grades, or I'll do something new in your life, or you might get to heaven. Those are right answers. Now you just have to do it. And since you're trying to justify yourself, just remember it's on you. You're responsible. And then all of a sudden, in that moment, you're wondering, can I trust myself to make that happen? Because see, when we test God, whether it's over our salvation or these other areas of our life, whatever it is that we're facing, when we test God, it keeps us from trusting him with those very same things. Alistair Begg said it this way, when you come to God to test him, You'll never be able to trust him. But when you come to God to trust him, you'll find he always passes the test. But the even better news is that, man, we're all going to struggle to trust God with certain things in our life. But when you're struggling to trust God, Jesus comes to you with mercy. With mercy. Look at what happens as this fumbling expert in the law asks the clarifying question about who his neighbor is. Verse 30. Highlight this in your Bible. Write it down in your notes. Jesus took up the question. Jesus took up the question. Isn't that awesome? Like, it's a silly question. Who is my neighbor? Like this guy does, and Jesus takes up the question. He comes to him with mercy. And, and Jesus then, he, he comes into this story, 
right? He, he uses a story, which is another act of his mercy. And this story is rich with so many details that we won't get to cover today. So I'm just praying that we're, we're going to read this little uh, parable one more time. And, and I'm praying that the Holy Spirit would, would help you to make observations that, that are rich and deep. And, and so you can love his word even more. And that the mercy that we see in it would be salve in your wounds today, all right? Because you see, this really is a story of how Jesus comes to you with mercy to bandage your wounds and to renew your life. Luke 10, 30 and following. Jesus took up the question and he said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. It's probably the very road that Jesus is on as he's going to Jerusalem. And on that road, he fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him, beat him up, and fled, leaving him half dead. I love that this man is unidentifiable at this point. It doesn't matter who he is. And in the same way, a priest happened to be going down that road. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. In the same way, a Levite, when he arrived at the place and saw him, passed by on the other side, but a Samaritan, a Samaritan on his journey came up to him, and when he saw the man, he had compassion. He went over to him, and he bandaged his wounds, poured on his olive oil and his wine, and then he put him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and he took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii, two days' wages, gave them to the innkeeper, and said, take care of him. When I come back, I'll reimburse you for whatever extra you spend. What an incredible story. At the end, Jesus asked, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? And all he can say is the one who showed mercy to him. And then Jesus told him, go and do the same. I want to spend the rest of our time today uh, making three observations about God's mercy and how those observations teach us to go and do the same. Number one, mercy finds you. Mercy finds you. Verse 34, it says that the good Samaritan went over to him. When the other two had, had not even been willing to cross the road, he went over to him. Well, the other two, they saw him, And they moved on for whatever reason. We don't know their motivation for moving on. But the Samaritans saw him, had compassion, and went over to him. Mercy comes over to you. It finds you. I'm reminded of Psalm 23 in verse 6 when David writes, Only goodness and faithful love will pursue me. That idea of faithful love is is hesed. It's it's his mercy. It will pursue me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord as long as I live. Here in just a few minutes, uh, together, our church is going to sing these words from a song called The Goodness of God. Your goodness is running after. It's running after me because mercy finds you. And then it says, with my life laid down, I surrender now. I give you everything. In this moment, as Jesus tells this story, Jesus is coming after this lawyer's heart. He wants his heart, and he's doing it with mercy. 
Because in this moment where he could have taught this teacher the truth about God's mercy, mercy, he comes to him with mercy by instead telling him a story. You see, the stories of God's mercy are in and of themselves a gift of mercy to us that gently bring us to that point of surrender where we say, I'll lay everything down for you. I recently uh, read a story by a woman who said that as a girl, she was, she was very poor. She said, I grew up in an apartment that didn't even have hot water. But I married a man who had money. We got married, and he took me up to live in a place where, where I had hot water, number one. But so much more. We had this great yard and a flower garden. We had children. Anything that I wanted, he could get for me. And she writes, then suddenly I became physically sick. And I went to the hospital, and the doctors ran all sorts of tests. One night, the doctor came into my room, and with a long look on his face, he said, I'm sorry to tell you this, but your liver has stopped working. And I said, doctor, wait a minute, wait a minute. Are you telling me that I'm dying? And he said, I, I, I can't tell you any more than what I've told you, but your, your liver has stopped working. We've done everything we can to, to start it, and it's not working. And he walked out. The lady wrote, I knew I was dying. I was so weak. And I got out of my bed in the hospital, and I had to feel my way along the corridor down to the, to the chapel. She said, I was going to the chapel because I wanted to tell God off. I wanted to tell God, you are a liar. You've been passing yourself off as a loving God for 2,000 years, but every time anyone begins to get happy, you pull the rug out from under them. She said, I wanted this to be a face-to-face telling off of God. She says, just as I got into the center aisle of the chapter, chapel, I tripped and I fell and I fainted. And as I opened my eyes and looked up, there, stenciled along the step into the sanctuary where the altar is, I saw these words, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. She didn't say how God communicated this to her, but she wrote that what God said was, These doctors, they do the best they can, but they only treat the problem. I'm the only one who can cure you. She said, there with my head down on my folded arms in the center of the chapel, I began repeating, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. I surrendered to God, she writes. I found my way back to my hospital bed, weak as I was. The next morning after the doctor ran blood tests and urinalysis and all the tests, he said, your liver started working again. We don't know why. We don't know why it stopped, and we don't know why, like, why it got started up again, but, but it's working. And she writes, but I know, I know, God has brought me to the brink of disaster just to get me to turn my life over to him. Isaiah 30, verse 18 says, Therefore, the Lord is waiting to show you mercy and is rising to show you compassion for the Lord is a just God. All who wait patiently for him are happy. Mercy finds you. It's coming after you. It's wanting to extend itself to you. And because mercy finds you, for us to go and do the same means that we move towards the people that God brings in our path. Even today, some of you have been coming to Christ's community and sitting in your row for quite some time. 
uninterrupted by the routine of your Sunday morning. But I would ask you, who has God put in your path today that you could move toward? Maybe it's today at lunch. If, if you go out, I mean, I, I would guess that God will bring a server into your path. Move towards them with mercy. Tuesday at the gym or the field or wherever you find yourself, God will bring someone into your path. Move towards them with mercy. Thursday at work, God will bring someone into your path. Move towards them with mercy. Because mercy found you, and you are to go and do the same. God's mercy finds you. And then number two, God's mercy bandages your wounds. It bandages your wounds. Verse 34 says that he went over to him and he bandaged his wounds, pouring on olive oil and wine. A little oil for, for healing, a little wine to sterilize, bandages, and then up on the donkey, this man goes. On the way to healing, we all need our wounds to be bandaged. Amen? Even this expert in the law who is listening to this story is realizing in the moment that there are wounds in him that need to be healed. But what the man didn't know is that the man telling the story, Jesus, was traveling the same road to Jerusalem that this story spoke of. And in, in not a short time, by his wounds, the expert in the law would be healed. You see, the burden of your sins was thrown upon the man who rode a donkey into town. He carried your sins. The burden of your wounds he carried under the weight of a wooden cross that would become the bandages for wounds across all of eternity. Mercy bandages your wounds. And so for you to go and do the same, you have to remember that it is his love that has bandaged your wounds so that you could carry the burdens of others. Galatians 6, 2 says, carry one another's burdens, and in this way, you will fulfill the law of Christ. A few years ago, we made the trip to Disney with our, our kids. Uh, if you've been, you know that when you go to Disney, you walk and walk and walk and walk and walk and walk miles as you navigate the park. So our kids got tired, uh, like a normal kid would do, and, and we're rotating turns in the store, strollers and brakes and anything you can do to try and manage the whiny, I'm, I'm, I'm tired, my legs hurt. And one day had been particularly long, and, and as we're leaving the park, I have put Preston on my shoulders to help with all this. Next thing we know, this is, this is the situation. So I, I don't know if you can see this, but the boy is out. Out. Dead weight on top of my shoulders. Gone. Um, and it was really cute for about 25 seconds. And then you start thinking, I've got to get the rest of the way to the gate. Once I get to the gate, I've got to get to the shuttle. And then we've got to stand in long lines because it's the end of the day. Then we've got to get it. So I'm thinking, okay, I've just got to get to the shuttle. When I get to the shuttle, we can get in the shuttle. I can sit down. I can put him in my arms and all will be good. So we're going. My shoulders are burning. Dead weight. I mean, here we go. We finally get there. We stand in all the lines. And as we get to the bus and we're finally getting ready to get on the bus, we are the last people allowed on this shuttle bus, which means that every seat in this bus is full. So I get on, like, stroller in one hand, sleeping child on the other. He's too tall, so I, like, slide him down. I'm holding him with one arm, stroller in the other, standing on a shuttle bus like this, right? It's awful. It is terrible. My whole body is burning. My legs are tired. And as I'm standing there, arms burning, exhausted, I'm thinking about how much of a burden my son is. 
No! I'm not thinking that. I'm looking at my son. I'm looking at his sleeping face. And I'm thinking, this is a horrible situation. But I know how tired he is. I know how much he needs me to carry him in this moment. Just to get him back to his bed. To a place where he can rest. You know, we sometimes get so distracted by the pain in our lives that we fail to carry the burdens of our neighbors. But may Jesus remind us through his spirit that his mercy has bandaged our wounds so that we can bandage others' wounds and carry their burdens. Yet not us, but through Christ in us. Mercy finds you. Mercy bandages your wounds. And last, mercy pays for renewed life. If we're not already impressed with this good Samaritan, verse 35 says, the next day, if you're, if you're, like the next day, the guy was just on the road. He was just going on a little trip and his whole day gets sidelined by taking care of this beaten man on the side of the road. The next day, he took out two denarii, two days' wages, gave them to the innkeeper and said, take care of him. When I come back, I'll reimburse you for whatever extra you spend. Hear this good news. Whatever it costs to renew your life, Jesus will pay. Whatever it costs. The expert in the law is even more clueless to the fact that this storytelling, merciful Messiah will not just die to forgive his sins, but that he will also come back to life three days later, paying the price for a renewed life, the full price, every penny that it costs to get this man back to health, the good Samaritan will pay. And that is true for you as well. No matter what it costs to restore your life to the image that God created you in, Jesus Christ will pay. He's paid it all. You may be realizing that to give your life to Jesus is going to be costly it's going to require a lot of healing to be able to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. There's a lot of recovery for you between now and being able to love your neighbor as yourself. You're not even sure how to love yourself yet. And Jesus is reminding the expert in the law and, and thus us that, that the one who received life in this story, the beaten man, he received it not because he kept the law or he did good deeds or he was able to pay the best doctors in town. He's receiving life because of the compassion of the good Samaritan. Titus chapter 3 verses 4 through 7 says, But when the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us. Not by works of righteousness that we had done, but according to his, what's it say? Mercy. Through the washing of regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit, he poured out his spirit on us abundantly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that having been justified by his grace, we may become heirs with the hope of eternal life. What must I do to, to inherit eternal life? Throw ourselves on the mercy of God. Because mercy pays for renewed life and you don't contribute anything to the cost of your new life. And so as we apply that truth, it reminds us that new life isn't found in correction, but in conversion. You see, 
in this moment, instead of correction, Jesus uses compassion. Why? Because conversion always happens before correction. Jesus could have corrected this expert in the law at any point. When he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus could have said, wait, 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 you don't do anything. When he answered with, with the commandments, Jesus could have broken down the law and, and how he was the fulfillment of the law, and, and he could have told him, just believe in me. When he tried to justify himself and ask for a definition of who his neighbor was, Jesus could have let him know, dude, you're missing it. You're missing the truth. The real point and purpose of the law is to expose your sin so that you'll depend on me. Even at the end, Jesus could have preached a sermon from the story that he just told, but instead he asks the expert in the law, which of the three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man? Jesus is modeling and living out compassion because it was his compassion and mercy that could lead this expert in the law to conversion, to new life. And so as you parent your kids, it's good to correct them and teach them right and wrong. But correction without compassion will never lead to new life for them. As you listen to your coworker share about the consequences of sin in their life, and, and, and remember that as much as you give them life principles and correct their moral living, those things can't contribute to the cost of their new life. They need to have their heart converted by our merciful God. As your, as your friends or maybe even your adult children come to you seeking advice, remember the words of James that mercy triumphs over judgment. And as Jesus asked the question, who do you think proved to be his neighbor? I think the expert in the law is getting the picture. If he was to inherit eternal life, he needed to show mercy to anyone who was in need of it. But the only way that that was possible was if he received mercy himself. Y'all remember the game, Mercy? Play Mercy? I was an ignorant, I just put in all the weird things. I was a stupid middle school boy. And I loved to play Mercy with my dad. Um, I thought it was like the way that I was going to prove to my dad that I was a man. One day I'll beat you in mercy. Dad had, ha, has, he has these really strong hands with stocky fingers. I've got my, my mom's long fingers. And like his hands are just so strong. So I'd lock my fingers in his and we'd talk a little trash and the match would begin. And you know how this works, right? Like you, you try to bend each other's hands and wrists and fingers until the other person is in so much pain that they have to cry mercy. So we'd talk a little trash, the match would begin, and he would let me win for a little bit. And then eventually the tables would turn, as my fingers did. <laughs> and he'd bend them back. He'd say, is that enough? No, 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 no. Are you done? No, I'm tough. I'm ready. Say it. Right? We just go back and forth until eventually I'd have to say mercy. <laughs> now, looking back, I've realized the truth that we can all see now. My dad could have crushed me at any second, broken my hands, like it, it, would, it would be no thing for him. But it was his mercy 
that brought me to a point where I realized that I needed mercy. Little by little, reminding me of my own weakness and his strength. Y'all, God's mercy is incredibly good to us. It finds us, it bandages our wounds, and it pays for our new lives in him. It's his mercy that gives us the courage to fail forward as he breaks new ground in our lives. Much like dad asked me if I was ready for mercy, Jesus asked the question, which of these do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? He's giving him a chance. And his answer is the one who showed mercy to him. The expert knew the right answer in his mind, but his heart still wouldn't allow him to even let the words the Samaritan come out of his mouth. It was just too much for him. He was a sick sinner in need of the very mercy that he was being called to show to his neighbor. And so he ekes out the one who showed him mercy, even though he didn't really want to say it. And that's a picture of you and I. Knowing we should be more merciful, yet in great need of mercy from the Savior. And the good news today is that Jesus comes to you with that mercy. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you. You love us with grace that is greater than our sin and in ways that we don't deserve. You are so good to us. And so, Lord, I just pray that for these next few moments, you would send your spirit this place. Protect, protect each heart and mind and soul from, from distraction, from, from pride that says, I can figure this out on my own and tries to justify itself. Spirit, bring, bring, bring a spirit of repentance and conviction into this place as we respond to the good news that your mercy is coming after us. It's longing for us to repent and turn to you and trust you more and more. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, DJ again. Thanks for joining us at the canteen and listening to this week's message. Uh, we hope it was helpful to you and that you're encouraged and challenged as we set out this week to walk the walk of faith together, joining Jesus in going outside. Uh, if you're a part of Christ's community, hey, let's let's lean into this. Let's not let this just be an academic exercise, but let's apply what we've heard today. How can you be applying this truth in your life this week? If you're not part of the Christ community family, we're glad that you joined us, glad that you found us, and we hope that, uh, that this message was helpful to you as well. One encouragement we would give you, if you're not part of a local church, uh, please don't use these resources as a substitute for that. It is a pale imitation of the real thing as we live in community with one another. So if you're in the Shelbyville area, we'd love to have you come out and join us. But wherever you are, find a local church, get plugged in an experienced Christian community as it was meant to be, and continue to use these resources to supplement that journey. But please don't replace it. Thanks for joining us this week. Grab your backpack, and I will see you on the trail. Thanks for listening to The Backpack, a production of Christ Community Church. The Backpack is hosted by DJ Williams, Daniel Bright, and Josiah Ward. You can learn more about Christ Community Church at loveshelbyville.com.